So we're uh, <clears throat> in the second sermon of our doctrine series uh, called We Believe. Last week we looked at uh, doctrine and we asked the question, why should we study doctrine? And I gave you five reasons. Um, and if you uh, ever want to know, you can actually go back online. We record the sermons, and if you uh, ever feel like you missed something or if you're an A-type personality and you didn't catch quite the, the joke that I made because my jokes are incredibly important and you, you need to, to go back and, and laugh at them again, it's all like a whole new experience, uh, we actually put those up online. But this week what we're looking at is our first doctrine. And so uh, if you've ever been a member of the Salvation Army, this doctrine shouldn't uh, be new to you. This shouldn't be uh, be out of the box. Uh, if you're a, a, a former officer or a retired officer, uh, at one time you had to memorize this and say it in front of a bunch of people to get commissioned. Uh, and this is, this is our doctrinal statement on uh, what we believe about the scriptures. And, and this is how it reads. We believe that the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments were given by inspiration of God and that they only constitute the divine rule of Christian faith and practice. And what we're going to do today and this morning is we're going to be looking at this doctrine, um, and I have to preface it with this. The way that I preach is more a form of teaching. So for, for some of you, you're like, man, I thought I didn't have to go to school today. You do, because uh, that's the way I do it. It's, this is much more of a, almost like a seminary lecture form simply because of the way that this doctrine is and how important it is to understand it. And so what we're going to be looking at here is the doctrine of the scriptures. And so uh, in studying this, I found this, uh, this wonderful quote by a, a guy called Matt Chandler. He's a pastor of the Village Church in Texas. He said, if you're not confident in the authority of the scriptures, you will become a slave to whatever sounds right. And if you look at the world today, if you look at some of the churches, uh, and I use that term loosely, that are uh, uh, putting content out there in today's world, isn't it not true that a lot of them, uh, many of them, are a slave to what sounds right? We don't want to offend people. We don't want to, to, to get anyone riled up. We just want people to be comfortable. We want to grow uh, numer numerically as much as we possibly can. And so we're not going to, to do anything that upsets anyone. And, and if you're not confident in the authority of Scripture, and what that means, that statement, authority of Scripture, is that we believe that Scripture is where we get all of our stuff from You want to know uh, why we, we preach out of the Bible, if you want to know why we do certain things, why we collect tithe and offerings, why we sing hymns, why we, we come together in corporate prayer, all of it is from Scripture. And so what Scripture does is it gives us a solid ground to start. And there's a spelling error right there. It's going to annoy me for a long time. Scripture gives us a solid ground ground to start. And so we need to sort of ask that question then, what is the Bible? And I'm glad you asked that question because this is what we're going to do. The what Bible... Hey, thank you, honey. <laughs> the Bible is made up of 66 books written by some 44 authors over a period of 1,500 years. And that's a conservative time estimate. Most scholars believe it's closer to around 2,000 years worth of recorded history. Uh, that 44 authors is also uh, uh, a conservative. Some people think that two authors might have written the same book, but they got put together. I'm not getting into any of that. That's a conversation for when there's only two of us in the room and the rest of us don't want to take a nap. 
Um, but just to give you an idea, there are 66 books in the Bible uh, with uh, some 44 authors. And what we need to look at is the fact that the, the Old Testament is broken into very three distinct separate yet interrelated parts. And so we're going to go through those uh, particular parts because I have the microphone and I have the iPad. So this is what we're going to look at. The Old Testament is written into three parts, the law, the writings, and the prophets. Now what's really interesting is the way that if you were to pick a Bible out of the pew in front of you, out of the chair, uh, the way that that is structured, uh, the way that that is ordered, is not the way that it has always been ordered. Uh, for an example, the book of Chronicles actually appears at the end of the Hebrew uh, scriptures. And so we have it roughly somewhere in the middle of the Old Testament, and they shove the prophets at the end. But that's not actually the way it was ordered originally. And so we're just going to look a little bit of some uh, interesting information, and it's interesting to me. And if you don't find it interesting, again, I've got the microphone, so whatever. Uh, so the law. This is the most important thing to anyone who practices Judaism. It's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is uh, historically written by the prophet Moses. Uh, Moses wrote these five books down. There's a little bit of discrepancy at the end of Deuteronomy because he, uh, he dies uh, and it keeps going. Um, so maybe someone put a little tag on the end of Deuteronomy to say, hey, by the way, this is where Moses is buried. Peace out. Now let's move into Joshua. And, and speaking of Joshua, that brings us to the second part of the New Testament. It's called the writings. And the writings itself is broken up into two sections. You've got history and you've got wisdom. And so uh, the, the Old Testament broken up into three parts, but the second part is broken up into two parts. Are you, are you keeping track? I don't see anyone taking notes. What's going on? This will be on the test at the end of the sermon. And so you've got the history and the wisdom. The history books literally do what you think a history book should do, and it records the history of God's people and the promises of God as they moved into the promised land. It starts with, like I said, the story of Joshua and his conquest of the land of Canaan, and it moves into then uh, some of the books of, of, of things like uh, uh, Ruth, although there is some debate of whether or not Ruth is actually part of the second section, the wisdom literature. And the wisdom literature is simply that. It's the stuff that makes you wise. It's the stuff, uh, the Psalms, it's the Proverbs, it's the book of Ecclesiastes, one of my favorite books in all of Scripture, because the author was in a slightly depressed state when he wrote it. And it makes you understand that in life, even if you love Jesus, your life doesn't have to be sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows every single day. Sometimes things go wrong, and you can lament those things. Lamentations, another good wisdom book. And so the third section of the Old Testament is called the prophets. And I love the prophets because they, they, again, are split into two sections, the major prophets and the minor prophets. And if you're a baseball fan, this has nothing to do with the way that baseball is uh, is, is switched up, all right? Uh, you don't have the major league prophets who are the important ones and get paid a lot of money and the minor league prophets who get paid a smaller amount of money and aren't quite so talented. That's not the way that these are broken up. They're broken up by length. The major prophets had a lot more to say. The major prophets were more, a lot like the way my wife tells stories. <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you all. Most of the time in every 
previous appointment, my wife doesn't actually sit through my sermons. She usually goes out with the kids and does junior church, and so she doesn't usually hear my references to her in my sermons. So I'm realizing that this is going to make lunch a little more awkward because that's not the only reference I got in here. The minor prophets are a lot more the way that I communicate, simple, short, to the point, and effective. And not nearly as much fun. And not nearly as much fun. Okay, this is where we're going now. Okay, well, we've got a lot of content, so moving on. The New Testaments. Yeah, you've just gone through the entire Old Testament. How, are you feeling wise? Are you feeling informed? Fantastic, because this is just the base information of, as, as to where we need to get to today. So the New Testament is split into four sections. So the Old Testament is split into three. The New Testament says, well, I can do one better, and says, I'm going to split it into four sections. First is the Gospels, the stories of Jesus, his birth, death, resurrection, his ascension into heaven, the things that Jesus did on earth recorded in the good news of Jesus Christ. The second uh, section is the, the Acts is its own section because it records the Acts of the early church. So if you ever want to know why it's called the book of Acts, it's actually, its full name is the Acts of the Apostles. And what it does is it chronalizes uh, the, the start of the early church. So from the moment that Jesus ascended right through to, to really when they got bored and figured out everyone actually knew the history because they were living it at the time. Um, but it goes all the way through and records these acts and the establishment of the early church. The third section is called the epistles, which is a fun word to say if you ever get bored, just epistles, epistles. It simply means letter. These are the letters of the church fathers to, uh, to the rest of the church. Most of them are written by the Apostle Paul, uh, but Peter gets in on the action. He writes a couple. James writes one. Uh, and so most of these uh, are written by the Apostle Paul, and they are sort of instructions building up the theology that is found in the rest of Scriptures. Remember I said that they're in distinct parts, yet they're all interconnected. And so the Apostle Paul is really great at saying, hey, you, this is what we believe, and here's why, and laying out the, the Old Testament and some of the things that the prophets said and some of the things that the writings say and then building on that and saying, and here's how in the Gospels, this is how Jesus made it complete and here's why here we believe what we believe. And so, so those are in the books called the Epistles. And then the final section is the book of Revelation, which is the only prophetic book of the New Testament. And it was written by the Apostle John as he lived on a rock in the middle of the ocean. Fun story, but that's another story for another time. And so you've got right there the Bible broken into its parts. So the scripture that Bart read for us earlier, uh, we're going to be focusing on verse 16. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3. uh, And what Paul is doing to Timothy, Timothy was his friend. He was sort of a disciple of Paul, uh, sent out into ministry, and Paul regularly communicated with him. And we have two letters to his friend Timothy, who really he considered uh, to be like a son to him, um, and he has these two letters recorded in Scripture. And, and so in 2 Timothy 3, uh, he's building up Timothy to this sort of conclusion, hey, uh, you've heard me preach, you've heard the way that these things have been taught. And so in 3.16, he says this, uh, all Scripture is breathed out by God. And here the phrase breathed out of God is the Greek word theonoustos. Have you ever heard the word pneumonia? Pneumonia comes from the same root word 
as this right here. It simply means uh, wind, uh, breath. It means, uh, uh, it means a couple of things, but it also can mean the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so the word pneuma is similar to the Hebrew word ruach, which means, again, breath, wind. Uh, and so when Jesus said to uh, his uh, disciples, uh, or rather to the woman of the world, that you must worship in spirit and in truth, he was using the Greek word pneuma, which is found at the end of this. So theo pneuma literally means breath of God. And so what we see is that all of Scripture is literally breathed out by God. And so if you want to put this into a basic form, if you want to put this into a word picture, I want you to imagine that God simply breathed out onto the authors of Scripture and inspired them to write down and record the things that we find in our Bible. And so God breathed into them and inspired them, and all Scripture is God breathed and profitable. And some of their the writers themselves expressed that their works were direct words from God. And this is kind of interesting to me because not all of them did it, but, but uh, I spoke a little bit about Moses earlier. And, and throughout the five books of the law, Moses says over and over and over again, thus says the Lord. And I've often thought that maybe this was a way of ending arguments. Right? Maybe, maybe you're not like me, but sometimes I get into an argument with my wife. I love her. We have two different minds and we think differently. So sometimes I am convinced that I am correct and I am also convinced that she is wrong. Usually it's the other way around in full <laughs> disclosure. But sometimes wouldn't it be nice if you could end an argument just by saying, thus says the Lord. No, I don't want to have to pick up my socks. Thus says the Lord. Nope, I'm not coming to bed. I'm going to keep playing Minecraft. Thus says the Lord. Like, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be nice to be able to end some arguments that way? Moses does it throughout the entire books, and so I'm not sure it's so much him trying to end an argument before it starts as to remind us and who he was talking to that what he was saying isn't just made up. It isn't something that you can just throw out when it gets inconvenient. It's not something that can just be watered down when you think it might be too offensive. It's something that comes directly from the mouth of God. Thus says the Lord. So we believe that the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments were given by inspiration of God. So we've covered what the scriptures are. We've covered what the inspiration is. And now we're going to look at the next bit, which is, is kind of my favorite. Uh, we believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testament were given by inspiration of God and that they only constitute the divine rule of Christian faith and practice. Divine here is pretty simple. It means God. What God says about life, what God says about his instructions to us, it's divine, it comes from God. But rule, now that's an interesting question, that's an interesting word, because a lot of you, uh, if you hear the word rule, you automatically think, hey, this is just a bunch of lists that I have to, to follow. If you've ever been to a hotel pool, or a pool in general, when you go into it, you'll find a, a list of rules on the wall, no running which I thought would be fairly obvious around concrete and water, but apparently it needs to be listed out. No running, no diving, no jumping, no horseplay. Rules, that's what we think, right? The word rule in Scripture, however, and in the, the sort of um, when these doctrines were being articulated, uh, rule actually means a, a, 
Um, I think I have it here. I do. Uh, the word comes from the Greek, which means a straight rod or bar. And what would happen is uh, in the marketplaces, someone would say, I want to buy this amount of some particular ob object. And what they would do is they would get out this measuring stick, which was called a rule or a rod, uh, and, and um, they would put it down and they would measure out a certain amount um, and it was the, the sort of the, the bar that was set for making sure that everything was fair and even. Does that, does that sort of make sense? Until the, the merchants uh, actually figured out that they could just have two sticks under the desk, uh, one for buying and one for selling, and the selling one uh, was shorter so that they only sold this amount, but they charged for this amount because people like to, to fluff with rules. But it was a, a measure for testing straightness. The idea here is that Scripture is the rod or measure not only for everything we believe, but everything that we practice. So here's the question for you. When you are in church and you ever have a question, well, why do we do that? It's simple. It's from, from the Bible. Okay? Um, the way that the Bible... Uh, sorry, uh, the Bible is the way we determine and act out our faith... Uh, do you want to know why we sing songs uh, in church? It says so in Colossians 3.16, to, to sing corporate worship together. Do you want to know why we, uh, you want to know if guitars should be in a worship service or not? No. There are some churches that say if you're not using the organ, it's not of Jesus. However, uh, the book of Psalms says to break out those stringed instruments. Stringed instrument, people, it's a guitar. Should be in worship, says so in, in the Bible. Should we read the Bible in church? Yeah, 1 Timothy 4.13 says to, to read scriptures together. So everything that we do, everything that we practice. So if you have a bulletin and you open up that bulletin and you start reading through the things that are in there, it'll say things like call to worship. It'll say things like a reading of scripture and singing of songs. All of that comes from the Bible. Those are our instructions in order for us to measure what we believe. And, and here's, here's why this is important. We get into a lot of trouble, not only as a church, but also, and I'll call it out, as the Salvation Army, by putting things into our church that is not measured up against Scripture and treating them as important as Scripture. Now listen, there are some things in our church that are not in Scripture. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that I need to wear a uniform on Sunday morning in order to lead worship, right? That's not in Scripture. doesn't mean it's a bad thing. Uh, it's one of the expressions of our church. It's how we identify members in our church is the wearing of the uniform. It's a good thing, but where we get a disconnect is when we take that, that good thing and we raise it to the same level as a scriptural thing. And I want to be real careful with this because the Salvation Army, it loves its traditions. It loves its traditions not only uh, in things like that, but even the terminology that we use can become a little bit of a tradition. And, and so, you know, we say, hey, the CSM is going to give some announcements. Great. What's a CSM? <laughs> well, you know. But if you were a visitor, would you know? When I say, hey, this person's from DHQ, what does that mean? 
And so sometimes, I'm not, I don't know you all well enough to be accusing you of this, so this is a general, generality. It's not, not me accusing you and saying, hey, you need to stop this. But, but a lot of times we use these, these words in our services and they can actually go so far as if you were a guest and you know nothing about the Salvation Army, it can actually push you out the door because you don't feel like you belong. And sometimes what we use as an expression of our movements can actually be a hindrance to someone's salvation. And so here's what I'm saying is you should always, always be careful that you never raise a tradition to the same level of Scripture. William Booth once famously said, if I could bring one more person to Jesus by standing on my head and playing the tambourine with my feet, I would do it. That is not an endorsement of tambourines. We play tambourines because it says so in Psalms. I really wish they didn't because I think the tambourine is a nuisance. It is a... Gives me a little bit of migraine, a little bit of a twitch, but it's in the book of Psalms, so we play them in our services. You would, wouldn't you? But too often what we do is we take something that is a tradition, and we elevate it to the same level as Scripture. Not just in the Salvation Army. I'm picking on the Salvation Army because that's the movement that I'm in. You go to any church, every church does this. They have traditions that eventually become as important as what Scripture tells them to do. Scripture is real clear on certain things. Love people, don't judge them. And yet, we judge people by the way that they dress, the way that they talk, whether they know the lingo, the way they don't know the lingo. Sometimes we judge people, visitors, when they come in, they sit in our seat because that's where I sit. Every week, I've been sitting there since 1952. Uh, it's Salvation Army too. Don't just pick on the ba- I pick on the Baptists as much as anyone. Love to pick on a good Baptist, but that's it. This, is, this is the fourth call that I've been in, and at least three of them, that's happened. And I've only been here three weeks. Give it time. So do you get what I'm saying? Do you get the principle here? The principle is really simple. When we look at uh, that we believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, so if you pick up a Bible, we believe it front to back. Not the maps, that's a little weird. Don't believe in maps. I mean, believe in maps. You know what I'm saying. But front to back, we believe what it says, which means when we find something that we don't like, we don't say, well, God mustn't have meant that. We don't say, man... Uh, God must have meant it then, but it really doesn't apply to my life right now, so I'm just going to ignore that. I find some people, they look through Scripture, and they say, man, doesn't this just guarantee that I'm going to be happy forever? And they say, well, I became a Christian, and they've been fed a, they've been fed a lie. They've been fed this thing that says, when you become a Christian, you have to be happy for the rest of your life doesn't say that in the Bible. It says that as a Christian you should be joyful, but there's a difference between joy and happiness. And so we have to be really careful that what we believe, what we preach, and what we practice comes from the Scriptures and not from tradition and not from uh, our own self. Because we'll cover this in a few weeks, but you and I, we're sinful creatures. 
We're saved by a holy God and we are sanctified by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. But you and I are sinful creatures, which means when we're presented with the opportunity to sin apart from the Holy Spirit, that's what we're going to be choosing to do. Which means, which means in some churches, the traditions are actually based from sinful places, not from places of Scripture. And we have to be real careful. We have to be real careful. Now, this particular sermon is a little more uh, uh, foundational than the ones moving forward in the, over the next 10 weeks because I need you to know that from here on out, every doctrine is a doctrine because we find it in Scripture. Not because someone came along one day and said, well, you know what? I think we need to, to do this. No, it's, it's in the Bible. What we believe about sin, what we believe about Jesus and his, his birth and his death, his resurrection, uh, his ascension, what we believe about heaven and hell, all of it comes from Scripture. And so today what I wanted to do was just take a little bit of time with you to really, really hammer home that this, this document has existed for a long time. It took 2,000 years to write. And even though it's separated into different sections and has different authors, it was written in three different languages over a bunch of time in different countries. Uh, people who wrote it had different jobs, different professions. You had people from, from shepherds to kings to, uh, to, to people who literally made tents for a living. Right? That's what Paul did. He was a professional tent maker, which I think might be a nice profession to take up. Maybe in retirement I'll become a professional tent maker. But that's in like 35 years. It's a nice dream. It's worth it. Scripture. We believe that the scriptures of the Old and New Testament were given by the inspiration of God and that they only constitute the divine rule of Christian faith and practice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that you've given us to come into your presence today and to worship you. I pray, Lord God, that as we go from this place, that we can look at the practices of our worship gatherings and that every single thing that we do, we can measure up against the rod of Scripture that we can say, no, we do this because you told us to in your scripture. And that as we move from this place, when we look at our lives, we can ask ourselves the same question. Lord, do you want me to do this? Is it in scripture? Lord, too often people complain that they don't hear the voice of God while ignoring the fact that your breath was poured out into the divinely inspired authors of Scripture. And sometimes if we want to hear your voice, all we have to do is open its pages and to read your words to us. I pray, Lord God, that the importance of this doctrine is not lost on anyone in this room, that we can believe that your word is the way that you mean us to live our lives. We pray these things in your Son's precious name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, we're going to, to sing our closing benediction, and Bart told me that he knew how to play it. Where's Bart? Is he gone? Yeah. What good is he to me? <laughs>